Today's sermon, to a certain extent, is a uh, product of something I learned from a, a sermon by Dr. Meredith, and I tried to find the sermon so I could reference it to you, and I couldn't find it. I'm not sure if it was uh, back in Global. It might have been actually a long time ago, uh, and he might have done a later one. I was just looking for that specific one, but it was about how to study the Bible, and it's actually a topic that he's touched a number of times, and I really needed to hear it when I was younger. Not that I wasn't studying my Bible, but my Bible study had almost always been the same. And he had addressed in that that there were multiple ways. You don't always have to do the same thing. I tend to be a topical uh, Bible studier. I'd want to talk about the Sabbath or study about the Sabbath. And so I would use a bunch of resources and get out a concordance and look up all these verses about the Sabbath. And we understand how important that is. Uh, If you're going to understand a doctrine, you have to put the entirety of the Bible together to see everything God has to say about that. And that's one of the beautiful truths that God's church emphasizes that we all benefit from. And that was generally what I would do. But in the sermon, Dr. Meredith emphasized that that's not really the only way to study your Bible. Sometimes there's a benefit uh, to just taking one book of the Bible and taking your time with it. If you think about it back in the ancient days, it would have been pretty hard to jump from Scripture to Scripture if you didn't have it all in your head. You'd have a, a room like this. You'd have Isaiah laid out over that corner, and uh, you know, but the Gospels laid out here. And you say, oh, that reminds me of in Revelation. You'd kind of run and not step on a document, try to get to the other side of the room. You just couldn't lay it all out, but you could spend some time in one scroll uh, or in one book at a time. And there's times for that. We can fall really into two ditches. Uh, one is the ditch where we don't put the entirety of the Bible together. And that really is actually just as uh, Mr. Josh Lyons mentioned in the sermonette. That is a way towards mistaken understanding. If you just take a look at times and seasons and the celebration of the holy days and don't look at everything the Bible has to say. Uh, Mr. Millich once said in a Bible study, that's one of the quickest ways to heresy that you're going to find is just take one small part of the Bible and build up all your beliefs on that without looking at the entirety of the revelation of God's word. But there's another mistake, which is the other ditch, which is only do that with the Bible, where the only time you really spend in God's word is piecing things together in the grand puzzle and not sometimes just sitting and allowing yourself to spend time in one book or one collection. Uh, Dr. Meredith recently has been reminding all of us that he's been going through the Gospels, for instance. Uh, Just a nice in-depth reading from one particular book or one particular area. And what I'd like to do today is talk about some insights that I've gotten from one particular book. Uh, It's going to be a sort of a potpourri of insights. Uh, If if you're a man and don't know what a potpourri is, it's a bunch of nice smelling weeds and stuff that someone has dried and stuck in a jar, uh, a variety of different smells that's supposed to be pleasing when you take them together. I just know I used to see a bunch of garbage in a jar and say, Mom, what's that? That's potpourri. Oh, okay. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, sort of a potpourri. There's a lot of different ideas that come out of this one book that you really see in this one book so many things touched on. Uh, really, I, I wouldn't have a hope of covering all of them, certainly, in a sermon, but it's my hope to inspire you to do that. If you haven't done just a nice uh, sort of slow 
walk through a particular book of the Bible in a long time, maybe you'll consider this one. The book of Job. Just spending some time in this book, you find there's powerful insights on such a variety of topics. You see insight into the spirit realm. Uh, You see insight into the nature of the devil, into the nature of God. You see insight into the nature of man, how man and God relate, how men relate to each other, how we should relate to others. You see vast insight into the purpose of man and the purpose of suffering and the nature of suffering and the need to trust God under all circumstances. It really is a marvelous book, and that really is our goal today. Our goal today is just to glean from the book of Job a number, a sampling of its powerful insights. And the title today is simply Insights from Job. Insights from Job. Is the microphone positioned okay, by the way? We normally have Nephilim up here and such and not regularly hided guys like me. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. I try to say regularly hided if under average height in America is regularly hided. I won't take the time to give you a historical background for Job. I would encourage you to take perhaps our survey of the Old Testament class. I know my mother-in-law and uh, uh, sons are taking the survey classes and really enjoying those. And they they did tell me that Job was coming up. Uh, But I can give you some kind of sense just very briefly that we do believe generally Job represents uh, some writings of the time during the patriarchal period after Abraham, but before Moses. And so part of what's fascinating, at least to me personally, about insights from the book of Job is you're talking about a time before Sinai, before Moses uh, took the people out of Egypt. Uh, You're talking about illustrations of things that were deeply true. We always say these things didn't start with Sinai. So many things they started back with Abraham and before. And we see some of those things on display here. Uh, without without going into detail about why we think that, again, I would encourage you to consider taking that course at Living University. But we do believe that generally is where Job takes place during that time. And I'm going to have to spoil the story to be able to do the rest of the sermon. So if you haven't read Job yet, spoiler alert, okay? You're about to hear a summary of what's going on with Job. Job was a powerful and wealthy man, but a righteous man. We'll see just how righteous as we look at some of the verses in the book. And within a tiny span of time, he has everything taken away from him as a result of a conversation between God and the devil. Uh, When God points to Job and says, look at my servant Job, he's righteous, he's blameless, he's amazing. And the devil says essentially, well, of course he is. Look how much you give him. Look how you take care of him. If you stop doing that, he'd probably curse you to your face. And God gives the devil permission to do just that and takes everything away from Job. Uh, takes his his lands, his possessions, his wealth, his children even. Uh, He has his wife still, and he has his health, but that's all, and he does not. He does not curse God. And so God and the devil are having another discussion, sort of a staff meeting, as we'll sort of see uh, later. And in that discussion, God points it out to the devil that he was wrong. Here's a chance for the devil to learn. You were wrong. You said that my servant would turn against me, and he didn't. And the devil says, well, yeah, but... He still has his health, doesn't he? He still has his health. You take health away from a man and there are no limits to where he will sink. He will curse you to your face. And God gives the devil permission to take even that. 
And the devil does. And Job ends up covered with boils, just these painful boils, where he's sitting in ashes and trying to, to give himself some relief by scratching his skin with broken bits of pottery, just in misery. Uh, his friends come, some friends come to see him and just to mourn with him. Sometimes there's nothing to be said. They just sit in silence for a long time until finally the friends start to speak. They just feel the need to give some kind of advice, some kind of help for him uh, as for why he's in his circumstance. And then you go through and he gets all this advice and much of it is a dialogue between Job and his friends. Even though the structure of Job is very poetic, we do believe it is a very accurate recounting of what actually did take place in time with the man named Job. And Job pushes back at his friends and says, no, that you're, that's, that's not true. What you're saying doesn't, doesn't fit my circumstance. So finally, one particular individual does give good advice. And I'll, I'll save some of the advice for when we get to that. And... After that advice is given, God himself arrives, uh, hidden by a, in a whirlwind, and speaks to Job, and in a sense reveals himself to Job in terms of who he is and what he is, and Job repents, it says, in, in dust and ashes, and then everything Job has is restored to him, uh, children, lands, he, he, he gets so much back, uh, and the friends are actually castigated by God and, and, and uh, called to account for God for their bad advice to Job. Well, I can sit down now. That's it. That's the whole story. Uh, that was a quick summary. But when you look at what to get out of Job, uh, the one thing, if, if anything, Job helps to illustrate the truth of Romans 8.28. Let's read that one before we get into it. Romans 8.28. For many of you, you might think, I know exactly what that says. Well, that's great. Then let's believe it when we read it. And if you don't know, Romans 8.28 is worth knowing. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we read here that Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And Job challenges us in a certain way because Job went through amazing depths of misery. And yet we learn that Romans 8.28 is still true. All things do work for good, even in the life of Job. In fact, we're told very explicitly, uh, turn to James chapter 5. Here as we conclude this beginning, James chapter 5. And James says something that uh, Job himself might have found hard to believe at first. James chapter 5 and verse 11. We're just going to grab this one point. James says in James chapter 5 and verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, when you actually read about what Job goes through, it's hard to think that God intended all this as a part of compassion and mercy uh, to literally lose everything you have, your children, your lands, uh, your, your possessions, uh, your respect. The people around Job were mocking him when he had been one of the most respected individuals in the entire land, uh, his friends accusing him of sin, of dire sin, and then his own health to the point that he's just in agony every moment of every day. And yet the Bible tells us here there was a merciful end intended by God. Job is intended to remind us that even when we don't fully understand God's purposes, 
they are merciful and they are good. And Romans 8.28 is still true. And so Job challenges us in that way. Uh, let's dive in to the book and just look at a few. You might uh, go ahead and open to Job chapter 1. And you might, if you have a ribbon or something in your Bible to mark a place, you might put it there in Job chapter 1. We won't always go to Job chapter 1, but it's, a, it's close enough. Otherwise, if you have a small child next to you, you might tell them to stick their hand in the Bible right there. Uh, we'll be, we won't stay in Job, but we'll be coming back to Job a great deal. And I want to focus, uh, as part of this potpourri first, in things concerning the spirit realm. Because Job really does give us some sort of insight, just sort of a, a peek behind the curtain, if you will, about the reality of the spirit realm and the, uh, the intelligences and the entities that occupy that realm. In Job chapter 1, it says in verse 1, just to set the stage for the rest, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now later we'll see that is one of the most remarkable descriptions. I pray that one day that can be fully said of me. And I'll preview a point later just because I happen to have read this is sometimes we tend to think Job is the story of what can happen to you if you're self-righteous. Uh, because Job did have an issue. He certainly had his challenges. But I would dare say if I would just if if I had to boil down to Job just one word and I said it was just self-righteousness, then I am in trouble. Uh, because when I look at Job, I see someone far more blameless than I am. I see someone with remarkable and astounding faith, a certain kind of humility, who was certainly challenged with a kind of self-righteousness, but it wasn't just off-the-shelf kind of self-righteousness. Um, I, I remember, uh, I can't recall the circumstance, but it was a teacher talking to a student, and the student was disappointed in his performance. And uh, the teacher was trying to encourage him, but with a certain kind of savvy as well to give him perspective and say, don't be disappointed. You're not good enough to be disappointed. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's what to be expected of you. You know, you're not, don't be, you're not good enough to be disappointed in your behavior yet or your actions. Um, I don't have nearly as much to be self-righteous about as Job does. Job was a remarkable man. A remarkable man. And we actually see the same, these same kinds of words coming out of God's own mouth later, though certainly they were inspired here. But let's jump down to verse 6. That's really where I wanted to head. Verse 6 of Job chapter 1. We read here, Now there was a day when the sons of God, speaking of angels in this case, came to present themselves before the eternal, and Satan also came among them. And the eternal said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the eternal and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. As we have taught in the church many, many times, this is the devil's domain. This is where he has a responsibility to a certain extent and authority. Uh, and this is where he was prowling around. And so God says in verse uh, 8, well, before we get to verse 8, we'll just stop right there and take a look at this scene. What is this? I don't really know how to describe it so much. To me, it gives me the impression of staff meetings that I know I used to have when I was uh, in the actuarial business. My manager would have a staff meeting every week or so, and we'd kind of report on what we're doing, and then uh, our manager would talk to us about you know, how they see things and what they want done. And here you have these things happen. There is organization in the spirit realm. We actually see a similar thing in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the eternal and Satan came also among them to present 
himself to the eternal. And the eternal said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the eternal and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. In other words, I am where you have assigned me uh, to be. Here I am on the earth. I remember the first time I actually read this particular verse and I took notice of it when I was in college. And it was one of those verses that reminded me that it's easy to think of the spirit realm as just something sort of fuzzy. It's just sort of there when really if our world is organized and detailed uh, and full of just fascinating bits of structure that, that, that we don't even see all of, let alone what the spirit world might be, might be there's organization there. There's structures, there's levels of authority. Uh, and I just found it fascinating. It doesn't really give us a lot of detail. Now you go into some other faiths. I think the, uh, there's branches of Catholicism and even Judaism and uh, uh, Islam where they've created all these sort of fictional structures of angels and all the rest like they really know. They don't know. Anything they do know is because some demon may have whispered, this is the way it is, and good rule of thumb, don't trust demons. You know? But regardless, they have all this fantastic sort of hierarchy and we do know their structure and organization, but God doesn't want us focused on that so much. Uh, focusing on the angels as opposed to focusing on God is a great pathway that leads you to trouble. It's one of the many reasons, other than just not having graven images, we don't recommend. You shouldn't have uh, statues of angels and all the rest, say, decorating your home. The angels want that kind of, sorry, fallen angels want that kind of attention. God's angels want us focused on Him and not on them. But we do see structure in the spirit realm. There is this kind of accountability. There's organization. Uh, and that's just one little insight you get from Job. Some of these insights will be shorter. Some will be longer. Uh, here is a longer one. The book of Job gives you a great deal of insight concerning the nature of the devil. The book of Job gives you a great deal of insight concerning the nature of the devil. And it is important to know. The apostle Paul uh, encourages Christians by saying, you understand the wiles of the devil. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Uh, one of my favorite scenes from the movie Patton, like George C. Scott, classic movie Patton. Can't say I can recommend it, George C. Scott. I mean, Patton had a pretty dirty mouth. My understanding was they actually toned down the dirty mouth for the sake of the movie. Uh, and, and yet there was a lot of dirty words. And I remember the first time my parent, my, uh, my dad actually was going to watch Patton. I was so excited because I'd heard there were all these dirty words. I was just a little kid. It's like, oh, I can't, I'm going to watch a movie with a lot of dirty words. And I, I kept keeping count. And now I look back and think, oh, that was just, you're stupid. You know, the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That was dumb. Uh, but I came to appreciate it just for the uh, amazing picture of the kind of leader that Patton was, imperfect as he was. But one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when they're fighting in the desert and he's fighting against Rommel. And he had read Rommel's book. Uh, he had read Rommel's book on tactics and strategy. And so he's actually got Rommel's book or something. A plane falls over. He goes, hey, Rommel, I read your book. He knew the tactics of his enemy going in. And Job gives us some insight into the enemy and what he is like. And so we're going to take a look at just four. We're going to rather go quickly, but four, at least four characteristics of the devil that are on display in the book of Job. We see right here in the book of Job in chapter 1, where we stopped a while ago, after the devil answers God and says, uh, well, I've been going to and fro on the earth. That's where I've been. That's where I'm supposed to be, right? Well, that, that's where I was. So in verse 8, we read, The Eternal said to Satan, 
Have you considered, this is chapter one, verse eight. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the eternal and said, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all he has on every side? Have you, sorry, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to your face. He will surely curse you to your face. Uh, We see the exact same thing in chapter two. After Job does not do that, uh, Job's response actually is remarkable. We'll get to that uh, a bit later. But we have another round in chapter 2 where the same thing happens. And we had stopped earlier in verse 2, but let's jump to verse 3. Again, the eternal says, it says in verse 3 of chapter 2, The eternal said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. It doesn't mean without cause. God has purposes for what he does. But in other words, he hadn't earned any kind of punishment. It's not like he's done something terrible or wrong. And so how does the devil respond? We see him in verse four. So Satan answered the eternal and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. So he really allows uh, the devil to take away everything but Job's life. He does allow Job to keep his wife, but in the end that actually becomes part of the burden as well because his wife is is so frustrated as well and just says, just curse God and die. Just, just you, she. We tend to give her sometimes, I think, a, a short straw uh, because that she doesn't seem to be as faithful as Job. But I put myself in Job's place. I wonder where I would be at that point. Uh, it wasn't just Job that lost his children, right? It was Mrs. Job as well. But we see the devil in that. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's the first thing we see on display. That for every positive thing that Jesus Christ might want to say about you or that God might want to notice about you, the devil has a way of twisting that. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. We see that stated, again, keep your place in Job, but we see that stated plainly at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And speaking of the casting out of the devil in prophecy, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, we read, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. We read that that is the way Satan is in Revelation, but here in Job, you see it. You see it happening. Where if there's anything the devil can take advantage of to accuse you for, he does so. Now, I don't know about you, but I give the devil plenty of ammunition without him having to make a whole lot up. But to see it in action where even the most positive of things... Uh, he takes advantage of an opportunity. It's just amazing to see it in action. It always does remind me, and I try to bring this up when I go to Revelation 12, that it makes me make, want to make sure that I'm not an accuser of the brethren. It, want, it makes me want to make sure that when I'm talking with others, 
that God isn't looking over the devil's shoulder while he's busy accusing the brethren and seeing me on earth doing the same. God takes that very seriously. And a lot of people need to understand whom they are imitating when they decide to spend time accusing brothers and sisters in Christ. So the first characteristic I want to point out about the devil that we see in this particular insight is that he's accuser of the brethren. Another is that he is malicious. He desires to do harm. He longs to do harm. Uh, We see that in these same two passages. In the first instance, after the devil makes his pitch and says, well, haven't you protected Job his whole life? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands? Doesn't he feel safe and warm and happy and wealthy? Of course he loves you, God. Of course he does. Take all those things away. He will curse you to your face. So we see in verse uh, 12 that God responds to that. It says in verse 12, And the Eternal said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. That is, allow him to remain alive in, in his current state of health. So Satan went out from the presence of the Eternal. Now when you read what takes place, Let's go ahead and read what takes place. We'll refer to it again later, but we have to see that when the devil is unleashed, he truly does act with power and maliciousness. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now there was a day when the sons and daughters, his sons, that is Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Then a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So he is getting some really bad news about his oxen and his servants how raiders came, took the animals and just killed all the servants and they left just this one to come bring Job the news. But thus begins one of the worst days you can ever imagine because while each person is relating the news, he doesn't even finish giving the news and the next person comes in with more news. We see that here in verse 16. While the particular first messenger was still speaking, Uh, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This isn't a raider. This is clearly something miraculous. Fire came from heaven and consumed this flock. We know in the end times that, that there will be a being who's able to bring fire down from heaven, an entity, a false prophet. We see the devil can do such things. But while he is still speaking, in verse 17, while he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You know, you imagine Job. He was a mighty man. He had many servants and much property. And maybe y'all could be the household of Job and all of his children assembled in one place. And imagine within a span of just moments, he hears from multiple servants that everything he has has been taken. All of his servants killed. His own children die. Uh, the devil is malicious. It just take a brief unleashing. And indeed, the devil did unleash. 
uh, such havoc in the life of Job. Now, without getting into Job's response yet, saving that for a bit later, we'll talk, because Job did pass that test. Uh, He did not curse God to his face. He blessed God. Uh, We get to chapter 2, and we see the second round, and see the devil in action again. This is after the devil had said, well, skin for skin. What if you take his health and and such things away? So verse 6, we see the eternal said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. Spare his life. God had something in mind. Verse 7, so Satan went out from the presence of the eternal and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There was not really any space on Job where he was not covered with painful boils. You know, if your feet hurt, you try to get off your feet. But what if every place hurts as much? And that's the position Job was in. It says he took for himself a potsherd, that is a broken piece of pottery, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of ashes. This was the kind of agony that Job was in. It was enough that verse 9, it says, His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just be over with it. Clearly, God has turned against you and hates you. Just end your misery. Curse him and have it done with and have it over with. The lesson I pick up from this is that the devil is malicious, absolutely malicious. Actually, Mr. Aguin uh, made a comment on Job at this point once and said, uh, we get the impression that when the devil has something bad to do, he doesn't waste time in doing it. Uh, When the devil is free to do something bad, he does it. And I am reminded of this. Dr. Meredith continues to remind us over and over and over that the devil has no good will toward us. The devil is bringing things on the church and that we'll need faith and we'll need courage. And you'll see that in some articles coming out again in the next couple of magazines. There's a reason Dr. Meredith keeps going over this over and over and over because this is the nature of the devil. What, if this is what he did freed to do that to Job, what do you think the devil would do if he were freed to act according to his heart on us in this room right now? What stays his hand other than God's plan and God's mercy and God's intentions? The devil has no mercy. There's no mercy in the devil. He is malicious through and through. Uh, A third insight concerning the devil. The devil's central philosophy, his worldview, how he sees the world seems to be the way of get. Uh, One of the things, Mr. Armstrong gave the church so many gifts, and one of them was boiling things down to a way of get and a way of give. And you see in the devil's mindset this way of get. The only way he can really rationalize Job's obedience is that Job is getting stuff from God. Well, of course he obeys you, God. Look, you've given him so much stuff. He's got lands and property and pretty kids and a nice wife and you've kept him so safe you've given him prestige and honor in the land of course he's acting nice to you of course he's kissing up to you of course he's blessing your name because you take care of him like a good pet god he's praising you for what he's getting from you god allows him to take all those things away god allows him to take all of those things away We see Job's response. Job does not satisfy the devil's expectations. After losing all of his things the first time, 
losing all of his sons and his daughters. It's not that he didn't care. He doesn't respond like, what well, well, a bad day for me. <laughs> well, I'm so righteous, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't do that. He actually is moved terribly, like any of us would be. He was a human being, Job was. And it says uh, his response after he hears finally the news that all of his children have died, verse 20. It says, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And worshipped God. He didn't fall to the ground and curse God's name. He didn't shake his fist in the air in anger. He worshipped the very God that had allowed these things to happen. And it gives his words in verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The eternal gave, and the eternal has taken away. Blessed be the name of the eternal. Verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. The devil was wrong about Job. He didn't just love and obey and trust God because of what he got. But that's how the devil sees the world. And part of what Job challenges me with when I read this is, am I only loving and worshiping God because of the wonderful things I get? I have been abundantly blessed. Uh, There's times when I can start to kind of moan and cry, oh, you know, woe is me. And I look at my life and think, "Ah, boy, I'm a fool. I mean, I'm a fool. Look at how amazingly blessed I am, abundantly so. And then I have to ask myself, is this the only reason I love God, is for what I have in this life, in this world? I think I've mentioned before, and forgive me if I have, but I know uh, when my children were young, we used to pray together every night, just trying to teach them to, to kind of be in that mode. And for a long time, I would make sure they were thankful to God for all the things they have, which is important. We should thank God for the things we have. But I also, after a while, because of Job, began to think as well, I don't want them to get caught up in just that. And just thinking that it's because of the things they have that we should thank and praise God. What if all those things disappeared? Uh, What if there were loss of life and loss of home and loss of belongings or loss of health? would I still be thankful? Would I still honor him as my creator and my God? And would I respond like Job did? Would falling to my knees and worshiping God be my reaction? It doesn't compute for the devil, though. It doesn't compute for the devil. Why would you worship God when you're not getting a bunch of good things in this life? Why would you do so? You know, it's difficult for us in the American economy. Actually, if you turn to 1 John chapter 2, you ever seen the American economy in the Bible? It's in there. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'm sure in the Oval Office, President Trump is looking at this verse right now, trying to understand the American economy. That would be great if he were, by the way. It would help make America great again, just so you know. Uh, 1 John chapter 2. What is the basis of our powerful economy? Verse 16. 1 John 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 
You know, if you happen to watch the Super Bowl coming up and watch the commercials, which is the only reason why a lot of people do watch the Super Bowl, you'll see commercials designed to incite in you uh, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life because that makes us bring out the wallet of hope uh, and the credit cards of power uh, so we can purchase things. That is the basis of our economy for the most part. And that is how the devil sees the world. It's the way of get. And that's what he challenges God with is, yeah, of course he loves you because he's getting from you. And Job goes on to demonstrate that that is not the basis of his faithfulness to God. Whoops, I skipped too many pages, sorry. That's not the basis of Job's obedience. What Satan, did Job, what Satan said Job would do, he did not do. The devil was wrong. But that brings us to the fourth characteristic of the devil in this particular insight I want to talk about, which is that the devil is not truly teachable or correctable. Notice in the first instance, what do you tell God? God, of course, Job loves you. You give him so many things. You just pour out your blessings on him. You know, I'd probably love you too if I were Job. Uh, but if you take those things away, he won't. Well, God allows the devil to take those things away. So the second chapter two, do we see the devil come up to God and say, wow, God, you are right, man. I mean, I just knew it. I knew if you took all those things away, he would curse you. And then we did it and he didn't curse you. I, I'm sorry, God, I apologize. I just want to learn. That's not what the devil says. The devil already believes he knows all the answers. He already knows all the answers. It was just a bad experiment. So he comes up with another one, right? He comes up with another one. He wants to keep experimenting until his answer is shown as true. The devil is not teachable. Uh, he does not repent and grow and learn. And we see that on display in Job as well. And again, we should reflect on ourselves in all these things. Am I an accuser of the brethren like the devil? Do I ever act maliciously? Do I ever act with the desire to harm? Uh, to harm physically? To harm emotionally? Uh, to harm the reputations of others? Am I malicious? Uh, thirdly, uh, concerning the devil. Uh, we talked about how we have a, can have a get mindset. Do I ever act with that kind of mindset? And then finally... Am I also teachable and correctable? Hopefully, hopefully I am. Hopefully we all are. All right, let's move on to another insight from Job. This one, I have found this one of my most helpful insights from Job personally, uh, but it can be a little challenging sometimes. And that is the role of God's authority when Satan attacks. We see insight in the role of God's authority when Satan attacks. Notice who brought up Job first. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, it wasn't the devil. It was God. God brought up Job. God had a plan. We saw from James that God had a merciful end intended for Job. God's the one who brought Job up. And again, we see in his response... Job's words in chapter 1 and verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job didn't see it as something between him and the devil. He saw it as God's 
activity in some kind of way, at least in terms of what God allowed and God did. He makes it very blatant in verse 21. Again, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The eternal gave and the eternal has taken away. Now, who was actually acting here? It was the devil. That's very plain. God gave the devil permission, allowance to persecute Job. And yet Job words it in this way as that the eternal God has taken away. Can we process that? How does that really work? To me, this actually resolves certain questions in Scripture. We have to understand that the devil can only do those things that God allows him to do. The devil never persecutes and God looks back and goes, Oh no, I wasn't paying attention. Canada's gone. Oh, I loved Canada. You know, uh, that never happens. God is always watching. He is always aware. And as Mr. Armstrong said, as Mr. Ames often emphasizes, God reigns supreme. God reigns supreme. To me, it helps resolve certain Bible difficulties. If you'll turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24, we'll see an example. These are the sort of things that people like to bring up as if somehow they can destroy the Bible by just pointing out an apparent contradiction. 2 Samuel chapter 24. And starting in verse 1. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1. We read here in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1, Again, the anger of the Eternal was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Uh, he essentially, David acts on some of the desires of his own heart in that sense, but he moves David. So here we see that it says God moved David. Verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go, uh, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, count the people that I may know the number of the people. Well, if you look at the parallel account in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we see the same account written by a different author, also under inspiration. 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. We read here, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me the number of them that I may know it. Well, which is it? Was it the devil or was it God? It seems like a contradiction. But it's not because the devil can only do those things God allows him to do. How many things were on the devil's list to do to David? Right? I mean, think of how quickly he acted in Job's life. How many things are on the devil's list that he would love to do to you and love to do to me? He is only allowed to persecute here and there. And in this particular case, God allowed him to do so. But because of that, God still reigns supreme. He's still in charge. He was working a purpose in David, working a purpose in Israel. We see a New Testament example in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. 
And we have an example of Paul that I used to encourage myself actually uh, many times. An example of Paul, I believe, was uh, he was allowed to experience not just for himself, but to be recorded for us clearly because it was. Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was talking about these visions that he had been given. And then we see how God kept him from getting the big head after these visions. Second Corinthians 12 and verse 7. We read, Paul writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In this case, he makes it very plain. We just saw it. It was a messenger from the devil, a messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh. He's under no doubt who has caused this in his life. It's the devil. Yet who does he plead to? Who does he interact with? With God. Because the devil would only be able to do that if God had allowed it. And then he makes it plain to Paul, yes, I am allowing this for purpose in your life, for reason. And I find that encouraging. We do have to recognize that God is not our persecutor. The devil is our persecutor. The devil is the one who persecutes us. The devil brings challenges and attacks on us. And what nasty things he would do if he were allowed to do them. But God always has a purpose in them. There's never something happening that's just happening just to make life difficult for us. And that's what I find encouraging in all of this. That God is always involved. That if I'm going through some kind of trial, God is present. It never happened when He was looking someplace else. It never happened when He was reading a good book or looking at the internet. God is always attentive to what's going on in your life and in my life. If difficulty comes on us, if it comes on the church, God is still there. He is still reachable. He is still in heaven sitting on His throne and is completely aware and involved. I was inspired by the response when uh, Hilton Head was no longer available as a, uh, as a feast site. It was amazing seeing everybody here turn around, uh, came in for the uh, manager's meeting, and uh, you had, it was like a control center, you know, what was going on. And you had Mr. Ames and Mr. Weston and Mr. Simone came in. Mr. Simone was so working so hard, didn't even realize he didn't have a tie on. He was mortified later, but he was just working. You know, he was working so hard. And it was just amazing seeing all these things come together. The festival office, just fixing things. And seeing God's hand in all of it. While, yes, it was a difficult circumstance, it was a powerfully difficult circumstance. But you saw God's hand working in it for purpose. We don't always know the purpose. But it's times like this that remind me there is a purpose. When James chapter 1 talks to us about being joyful in trials and persecutions and the rest, you want to think, you've got to be kidding. You know, When someone is doing something terrible to you and they're ripping you apart physically or emotionally, Praise God for that. You know, find joy in that. And he's not talking about being giddy like some person that's just lost their mind. But at the same time, there is a certain comfort 
and even a certain kind of joy, recognizing that if something's going on in my life right now, it's because God has plans. It's because God is doing something, and I can trust Him for that. Okay, so these insights related to sort of what goes on in the spirit world in terms of our interactions. I'd like to focus in the rest of the sermon on insights concerning the humans. There are people in the story as well. Uh, and we get insights about them in Job and really then insights about us. First, and this is a small one, if you turn to Job chapter 14. And this is just one example. We're not going to stray through the whole Bible looking for other examples. But there was a sense of the purpose of man and the idea that it was beyond this life where our great purpose would truly be fulfilled. And we see this even in Job. As far back as Job, there's this belief in the resurrection, a belief in something coming that is far more important than what we have today. Uh, We see this reflected in Job chapter 14, where Job finds some comfort. Job 14 and verse 14. He asks, if a man dies, Job 14, 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. He had lost Virtually everything in this world a man could long for and want to possess. But where he found comfort was knowing this wasn't the purpose of it all. There was a purpose beyond. That even if he dies, and at that point in his life, you read the verses before, he felt like death would be sweet relief. And that even if he died, he knew there was a time coming when God would desire the work of his hands. That there was good intended for him. Side note, by the way, I can't help the aside, but it's a hot topic today. You see an increasing growth in this desire to allow a legally legally assisted suicide or medically assisted suicide. It's a big hot topic now. Canada's going crazy with it. They're busy killing uh, teenagers and children in Europe uh, because they've just gone wild with this idea that everyone should be able to control their own death uh, and have it as dignified as they want. And yet... Job, who understood God's righteousness, he says earlier in that verse, verse uh, 13, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, he tells God. He goes, My life is worth nothing to me now if you would just let it end and I'd be done. Notice he didn't take his own life because he was a righteous man and that would be wrong. He recognized that is God's decision. It's God's decision. Job recognized through all of this, he may have been fairly disfigured, covered in boils, but he was still an image bearer of God. And that life is sacred to be taken or given at God's choice and not ours. So side note, another insight from Job. Uh, Anyway, uh, moving back to my topic. In Job chapter 14, verse 14, we see that he understood there was a purpose for him later. Uh, He hadn't read the book, Your Ultimate Destiny, though I recommend it to Job if I see him uh, next week. He hadn't read the book, but he did understand there is a purpose to life, and this isn't it. This isn't it. This is not some New Testament creation. It's not a creation of Herbert W. Armstrong or the Living Church of God. This idea of something beyond us where we are changed into something better has been around since the beginning. 
has been around since the earliest parts of the Bible. All right, that was a short one. Let's move on to a discussion I'd like to make of Job's righteousness. Another insight in terms of Job as the example of righteousness. If we go back to Job chapter 1, and this was something that really challenged me because I used to really focus on Job as just self-righteous. What a self-righteous guy. You know, he was so self-righteous, you know, that uh, he had to be covered in boils and all the rest. I'm glad I'm not that self-righteous. Well, I've come to learn that I probably outdo Job in this regard, uh, that I probably think more highly of myself, and I have less to think highly of, like I mentioned. Job was incredibly righteous, and it's not just that we can conclude that. God himself says so. God uses particular phrases. We see them used in Job, but they come out of God's own mouth as well. In Job chapter 1 and verse 1, we read it earlier, Again, it said, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Those are four very particular descriptions. Um, there's a, a commentary I like to use on occasion. They're off sometimes like all commentaries are. Actually, Dr. Merritt talked about that in the sermon about studying the Bible as well. Uh, but Keel and Delitzsch, some of you are familiar with their commentary on the Old Testament. They comment on this particular verse and go through those four descriptions. Here from their commentary, they mention, the writer intentionally uses four synonyms together in order to describe as strongly as possible Job's piety, the reality and purity of which is the fundamental assumption of the history. That is the book of Job. Uh, there's one, ta'am, is one of the words used. That is, with the whole heart disposed towards God and what is good. That with Job's entirety of heart, he was disposed to that which is good and towards God and the things that are honorable and right. Uh, and also well disposed towards mankind. That Hebrew word means, and you're generous and you look out at the world and you love people and you're well disposed towards them. Uh, uses another word in the description, yashar. Yashar says that that means in thought and action without deviation conformed to that which is right. That is, there is the right standard. And without deviation, this word means he was definitely in line with that. He did not veer to the left, did not veer to the right. Uh, they point out the other word used here, Elohim Yari, fearing God. Elohim Yari, fearing God. And consequently, what does fearing God mean? It says, and consequently being actuated by the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. That is, you truly fear God, meaning that your fear moves you to act. He didn't just mentally recognize the greatness and goodness of God and the power of God, and it caused him to fear or be afraid or just feel reverent. If we're not moved to action, we don't fear God. A real fear of God moves you to do, moves you to act. And it says Job had that. In God's own mouth, these words are given, that Job had the fear of God. And then finally, mir'akar. I feel like I'm speaking Klingon. Uh, mir'akar, which means keeping aloof from evil. Those things that are opposed to God, keeping distant and not wanting to be involved in any way. Job was amazingly righteous. It's so easy to think, and sometimes when we focus on Job as self-righteous in the book of Job, which again, he does have an issue with self-righteousness. We'll see that a bit later. But if that's all we focus on, 
I feel like there's two comforts that are false comforts that we can accidentally take from the passages and from the book. Um, one is that we can feel better about ourselves by kind of writing off Job and thinking, oh yeah, Job, he was so self-righteous. Not like me. Uh, I'm incredibly righteous, but not self-righteous. Uh, Job, frankly, at least I look in my life and I see someone far above me. I see someone that even before, in his trial and before the lesson he learns at the end of the book as someone I would aspire to be. Um, Job was not meant to help us all pat ourselves on the back. You want to go pat yourself on the back, you know, find a nice grandma somewhere. Grandmas are great at that. Mine was wonderful. That's not what the book of Job is meant to do. Okay? But then secondly, it can give us this false mindset that, oh, that's why he went through trials because he was so self-righteous. And then we go through trials and we don't know exactly how to calculate or how to understand them. Or see someone else going through trials and feel like somehow we must ascribe to them some kind of terrible sin. Uh, when the Bible doesn't always equate suffering with sin. One of the greatest sufferers in history was Jesus Christ uh, who knew no sin, right? Of course, he was taking that suffering for us. Job was a righteous man. In fact, actually... Uh, uh, something Mr. O'Gwin said about this in Bible study as well uh, concerning the book of Job. And I thought he summarized it so well. Rather than reinvent the wheel, I thought I would just read it. Uh, Mr. Grimm once said concerning Job, he said that, uh, and it was after Job 27, 6, where, where Job's talking about how he would hold fast to his righteousness. And he said, he said he didn't see where he had done anything wrong. Now, Job did have a certain problem. Job did have some problems with self-righteousness. There were some things he did not see. We sometimes focus on that to the exclusion of the fact that Job was a man who was devoted to God. His loyalty, his allegiance, his devotion to God was constant. Job loved God. He was devoted to God. He was prepared to trust God and to trust what God was doing all the way to the grave. Job looked for fulfillment beyond this life. That didn't mean that he enjoyed suffering in this life, but Job understood the real answer and the real solution. He understood this life, we're here, and we're gone. This life can be very difficult, but Job looked on beyond. He had a loyalty, devotion, and allegiance to God that the devil never comprehended. Job was not simply motivated by what he stood to get. Job loved God. He was devoted to God and desired to serve God, but Job did not really see himself properly in relationship to God in terms of how great God was by comparison to Job. And we'll get to that point actually a little bit later as well. So don't understand, Job is a righteous person. When we look at the book of Job and you really read about him, it's easy to be struck by certain statements of self-righteousness, but don't let those somehow erase the many powerful examples of faith in God and a devotion to those things that are truly important in the world uh, because those really do come right out of the book of Job and challenge you if you pay attention to them. In fact, let's focus on one of those examples. Job gives you many insights into what it means to trust God. The book of Job gives you many insights into what it truly means to trust God. Uh, we read what we read earlier, right, about Job's terrible day. You know, bad news after bad news after bad news. And don't get me wrong, I've had some bad days. I've had days that have dropped me to my knees and forced me to tears uh, when you, the people sometimes you, you trust and you find out you can't trust them or suddenly there's a sickness or pain or one of the kids is sick and I don't want to do and I've had those bad days. And yet I know many of you and many of you know days that I could not even comprehend. Some of you struggle with pains that I have never experienced in my life. 
Some of you deal with tragedy and difficulty that in my all of 46 years, I can't even truly understand or comprehend. And I admire the faith that many of you show in that. Job was a forerunner for us when it comes to suffering. He truly suffered. And in all of it, he still trusted God. He was in confusion. He didn't understand why he was going through these things, but he trusted God. It it gives me one of the most powerful statements of faith, I think, that I personally see in the Bible in Job chapter 13. What does it mean to trust God? I think Job chapter 13 illustrates it. In Job chapter 13, and we'll start in verse 13. And he says in verse 13, hold your peace. This is chapter 13, verse 13. Hold your peace with me and let me speak. Then let come on me what may. Let come on me what may after I speak. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hands? Why am I going through all of this? What do I feel like an animal? And yet, verse 15, though he slay me, yet... Will I trust him? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now we see in the second half of verse 15, a touch of the challenge he does have. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. I know the life I've lived. I will argue for this life with him. And then verse 16, he also shall be my salvation. For a hypocrite could not come before him. I do trust him to do right by me, he says, even though he's essentially saying, I don't see it now. I don't see it now. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job was willing and ready to die in his confusion, not understanding why do I suffer? Why have I clearly been cursed by God in some kind of way where even miraculous things have destroyed my belongings, where he has unleashed the devil on me so completely? And yet, even if I die confused, I will trust him. No, there's an answer coming to this. That's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. It's a model for us. It's easy to say things like, you know, I know, you know, God is going to save me. You know, God's going to heal me. And therefore, I will trust him. It's nothing to say, even if he never heals me. Yet, I will trust Him. That is a completely different statement. And I am not, I am not saying I've mastered that, just so you know. Uh, that's, that's like grad club stuff. Uh, that's like graduate level stuff. Okay? Christian walk is one of progression. It's one where you grow. And Job is in a place that I long to be. That I, I pray that I can grow towards that. I pray we all can. That utter, complete trust in God and His choices concerning our life. Uh, Job also displayed a willingness to be taught in that trust. Uh, he's frustrated. And I think that another thing I like about Job is I, I see such humanity echoed in his words as well. In Job chapter 6, some of you I know because I've talked with you and I know you'll see yourself in some of these verses. Job chapter 6 and verse 24, what does he say in his suffering and in his difficulty? 
Job 6 and verse 24. Teach me and I'll hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I've erred. How forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? All of you talking to me. All this back and forth. I need to know what it really is. I need to know why I'm suffering. If someone would just tell me why I'm suffering. In fact, he he speaks quite boldly. Uh, Turn to chapter 13 as well. We were there earlier. Chapter 13. And really, as you see, he's speaking to God. Like it says in verse 22, then call and I will answer or let me speak. Then you respond to me. How many, verse 23 of, verse, of chapter 13, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. I want to know. I just want to know why, what I've done wrong and why I'm doing all this. Because I look at my life and I can't see anything. I mean, how many times has some of your hearts cried out in the same way as Job? Just let me know, why is it this, that this house isn't selling? Why is it that I still have uh, this limp? You know, why is it that I still have this cough? Why is it that my child is still sick? Why is it that I'm still struggling to find a job? Is it a sin? God, show me. Just show me what it is so I can fix it and be done with all of this. You know, often that's really the motivation. We just want it to be done. We want it to be over. And we think somehow knowing that will be the key somehow to having it over. And yet... It's kind of ironic, in Job's case, wanting to know his iniquity really was part of the trial itself. It was actually part of what God was doing. When you really look at what God declares before Job at the end, you get the impression that the experience Job had was fertilizing the soil for that, was somehow making him ready for that lesson. Um, In all of his wondering, in all of his concern, in all of his striving, he did trust God. He did trust God in a way that I think would shame many of us. But it was difficult. Another insight concerning Job. Another insight concerning Job. Is Job self-righteousness? And there's lots of little clues you can turn to here and there. We've addressed one, but we're going to look at the end of Job chapter 31. And I'm going to use an analogy from an old French book, Les Miserables. Many of you have seen the, uh, uh, the musical, which is, distorts a lot of the book here and there. I've talked about that before. They make Eponine pretty. She wasn't pretty, but it's a musical. You've got to make her pretty. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not bitter. Uh, the end of Job chapter 31, we see this inside. We see this in Job where... I, uh, I'll save how to how to word, how I word it, how I come to understand it after we read this passage. Job chapter 31, and we'll start in verse 35. This is at the end of Job's big discussion. This is where he silences all of his friends. And it's at the end of his big discussion here in Job chapter 31, starting in verse 35. He said, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my hand, my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. And then verse 1 of chapter 32. 
So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. He was self-righteous, but he was also righteous. This is the thing. Sometimes we can think of self-righteousness as uh, as thinking highly of ourselves when really we haven't we haven't earned the right. Job was amazing. He really was amazing. But there's this there's this scene in the book, at least, in uh, uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, where he's talking about the character Cassette. She was a pretty girl. She's been growing up with uh, the guy she thought was her dad, Jean Valjean, and she reaches an age where she looks in the mirror, and she's a pretty girl. But you reach an age, what she did, where she looks in the mirror and notices that she's pretty. You know the difference? She was a pretty girl, but then finally she looks in the mirror and notices that she's pretty. And I can't think of the words, and it's a big book, I couldn't find it, but there's a, where it says, it responds to her reaction, and he describes it as if at that point she was a little less pretty. Because inside, there was just this kind of little bit of sort of corruption, if you will. It wasn't much. She's, it's not like she, if you haven't read the book, it's not like she has this terrible, she becomes Darth Vader or something at the end of the book. She actually has a wonderful life. It all just kind of goes forward. But it was an interesting insight there by Victor Hugo that that, that kind of embracing of you know, your own, it's like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm pretty. Uh, then all of a sudden, inside, she was a little less so. And to me, that's what I see in Job. It's not a pretty girl looking in the mirror, but I see a man who was righteous and very aware of his own righteousness. A little bit, perhaps, more preoccupied with his own righteousness than he should have been, as opposed to God's righteousness. And that's a subtle, it's a, it's a little kind of self-righteousness, but it is still self-righteousness. God doesn't want us focused on ourselves on those kinds of ways. Now let's turn from Job to his friends because there are some insights you gain from his friends. And I'm just going to have to encourage you to go read what they say to Job later. There's multiple discourses over the course of the book. It is a steak dinner. It really is. Plan on taking some time with the book of Job. Um, let's talk about Job's friends. Job's friends as self-appointed teachers. If you turn to Job chapter 42, you see God's concluding summary of the advice of Job's friends. Now, these guys were friends. Now, you might say, you know, with friends like these, you know, who, who needs enemies? They're just constantly, oh, Job, you must have sinned. You must have looked at a pretty girl wrong, or you must have done this, or done wrong by the poor, or this or that, trying to figure out what kind of sin Job had committed. That's how you make your friend feel better while he's suffering, is tell him how prob- sinful he probably is and hiding it from the world. And yet their intentions, I mean, they, they were good friends. What kind of friends just sit with you in silence for days and days and weep with you? And weep with you. They apparently were close and were trying to help, but God actually lumps their advice in a place we don't want our advice lumped. At the very last chapter of Job, Job 42, and verse 7. After Job's repentance, we read in verse 7, And so it was, after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, that the Eternal said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." 
Now, he's commenting on the advice of, of those particular three. There is one who does give, there's a fourth one who gives Job good advice, Elihu. So when you're reading through it, it's the last person that speaks before God who actually gets it right. But here's the point I want to make about Job's friends. If you actually take the time to read their advice, it doesn't sound that bad. I could see myself saying some of the things they say. And some of the things they say, you can find scriptures that correspond fairly well with some of the things they say. And I bring that up because we're at a time in the history of the church of God, as we get close to the end of the age, where self-appointed teachers are constantly rising up from seemingly every nook and cranny of the overall organization or disorganization of people that call themselves church of God. That is people outside of living everywhere. It seems like there's some guy finds, hey, I can get a free website. I think I'll run my own church. Uh, Next thing you know, they're just springing up everywhere. And yet Job's friends warn me in their example that just because you can spout scriptures out, don't think you're speaking for God. Because even though they could have backed up some of their... Oh, Job, well, hey, you know, it says in uh, the, the Torah, it says in the New Testament, they couldn't bring up the New Testament, didn't have it yet, but still, they could have backed up some of the things they said, and yet they weren't putting the pieces together right. It takes more than just knowing verses. It takes discernment. And it takes God's involvement. It's so easy sometimes to pat ourselves on the back thinking, we know the verses. I know what verse you need to hear. Let me tell it to you. And we don't always. We might know a verse, but it may not be the, quite the advice that God knows that person needs to hear. I remember early on in the ministry, out in the field, and having to advise someone or, or go visit with someone, I should say, that had just been through an incredible personal tragedy. And the verse that comes to mind is Romans 8, 28, all things work for good. But I tell you, sometimes that is the absolute worst thing to say to someone who has been through tragedy because it can make the verse seem flippant. Uh, and it's like, really, all things work for good? Well, tell me, smart guy, how's this going to work for good? Now, sometimes it might be the right thing. You pray for guidance. You pray for God to move in you. But times it's just not the right time. There's a reason that the ant works hard and stores things for the winter Uh, Because the winter comes when it's not time to do those things. If we haven't built some kind of structure on Romans 8.28, then when we're in the middle of needing to know it, sometimes it's, it's, it's not there. The time to meditate on it sometimes, the time to ground ourselves in it are the times when we're not struggling through that. Or it's a verse to struggle with sometimes. But to just throw it out there like, oh, hey, Romans 8.28, all things work for good, makes you feel better, doesn't it? Uh, Sometimes instead it's a matter of just sitting there with somebody, kind of like Job's friends in silence. It takes discernment. It takes God being with someone in the judgment. Uh, I know as ministers, I look out at, you know, Charlotte's rich with olive oil, right? You can't throw a rock and not hit a minister uh, when you're in Charlotte. And I feel like I can speak for all of us when I say we take that burden tremendously seriously, knowing that God holds us accountable for the advice we give out of the Bible. And it's not just a matter of just cranking out verses like a machine. It's a matter of knowing what exactly does God want to say to that person. It involves time on knees. It involves prayer, sometimes fasting, because it's a heavy burden. And Job's friends, if you look, that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Look at their advice in isolation. 
And sometimes it sounds like good advice. It sounds like good advice. You got to understand, they didn't know the end of the story. They were giving advice based on just they saw a friend who was suffering. And frankly, a friend that surely couldn't be as righteous as he seemed to be. Nobody's that righteous, except Job was. So Job's friend's advice humbles me in that way. Just because I know the Bible, don't think I actually know what to advise. I know what to advise. Finally, an insight from Job that we need to learn. And we haven't tapped the well dry, just so you know. Job, for me in my life, Job has been the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, it's, a, it's got the shortest name in the Bible, right? We don't have any two-letter names for a book in the Bible. Uh, Job is a tiny name book that's just so rich and full. And this last lesson has been probably the one that has lingered with me the most and probably one that I go back to the most. And actually I heard reflected in a, a, a Mrs. Mariah Lee's song, coincidentally, uh, actually just a, a Sabbath or so ago. Finally, God's lesson for Job, at least the way I boil it down, is that God needed Job to understand, Job, I'm God and you're not. I'm God and you're not, Job. We see the solution to Job's circumstance. We already saw it in chapter 2. In fact, I just turned there as a reminder. We saw it at the very beginning of chapter 32 as we were reading from chapter 31 on into chapter 32. And we saw in 32 and verse 1 where it said that, uh, so these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Elihu, the one who spoke rightly, provided a different perspective. He was a young guy, but he was spot on. And we see it in Job chapter 33, for instance, and verse 12. After kind of pointing back at Job some of his own words, he says in verse 12, he says, look, 33 verse 12, look, Job, in this you are not righteous, for I will answer with you. I mean, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? One of Job's questions earlier is, why does God contend with me? And Elihu, talking to a guy suffering in boils, sitting on ashes in agony, and says, why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. What does he really owe you, Job? Uh, You need a certain kind of perspective that you don't have. Uh, If you turn to Job 35, Elihu's, it's a long discourse, uh, Job 35 and verse 1. We'll read a good bit of it. It says in Job 35 and verse 1, Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Why do you say my righteousness is more than God's? Now notice Job never uttered those words. You will not find a verse where Job says, Oh, my righteousness is more than God's. But there was this sense in Job that somehow God was being unjust. He trusted God. He knew in the end there'd be some kind of answer, but there was a part of him, however deep it was, that seemed to feel God was being unjust. That Job, who seemed to deserve truly nothing, was getting such terrible treatment. When in the end, what do we all deserve? What do we all deserve? Right? Romans 3.23, 6.23. The wages of sin is death. It's what we've earned. It's what we've earned. And so he says, you say, do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? In other words, what advantage is it in obedience? 
You know, uh, it seems like I might as well have sinned. Verse 4, he says, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man. He's trying to point out this is in contrast to the gods of the pagans. My wife and I were actually reading some about that just this morning about the pagan gods and somebody would do something offensive on earth and they'd get all upset and offended and so lightning bolts or turn you into a toad or whatever they would do because they were very petty. And his point is God really isn't petty. He's not like that. Uh, He has larger things in mind. Who do you think you are? God has a plan. He's working something even if you don't understand what it is. Uh, In verse 3 of the next chapter, Verse 3 of the next chapter. He says, I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. Job has spent all this time defending himself. And he's saying you should have spent all this time defending God. You should have spent all this time defending God and not yourself. And it's really interesting if you turn back to Job chapter 1 and 2. It's very subtle, but it's important. Job chapter 1. If we go back to Job's amazing words after he loses so much in Job chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, after all this terrible news in verse 20, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The eternal gave and the eternal is taken away. Blessed be the name of the eternal. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. That is amazing. He defended God. In all these choices, he defended God. But then when he loses his health and he's got the boils and all the rest, and his wife makes that comment we talked about in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says at this point, it says his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Curse God and die. He clearly hates you. Get it over with. Get it over with. And Job corrects her in verse 10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Shall we accept good from God but say, no, God, you don't have the right to give me hardship. You don't have the right to do that. His words were perfect. His words were just as good as they were before. But then you notice the very next sentence in that verse. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He had come to the point where he did need to change. There was something there. One of the ways I like to look at Job, and I hope this is true. I don't want to go through what Job had to go through. But Job was amazingly righteous. But our journey with God never stops. It never stops. And sometimes we reach a plateau and God needs us to grow further. And part of what I see in the travails of Job, and this is my personal speculation, just so you know, this is me. But I see that Maybe Job was so righteous that to bring out that one more thing took trials like this. You ever had some kind of cyst or something that was just so deep, it's just painful, that just to find the next thing for Job to work on took something phenomenal in his life. But it did bring him to that point. Even with his lips, he still didn't. But there was something going on there. He was asking questions he'd never asked before about God. 
It's interesting. You know, we tend to focus on the chapters Job 38 through 41 where God talks about himself and his power and his majesty. You might just put in your notes Job 29. And that's where Job does the same thing, but about himself. Job talks about his rightness and his goodness. And part of what God needed Job to learn was God... I'm sorry, Job, I'm God... And you're not. And you might think, what a ridiculous thought. I could never think that I'm God. I look in the mirror and say, not God, clearly not God. But yet at the same time, we do tend to idolize the self to a certain extent. It's part of human nature. Almost like, if I want to give Job some credit, imagine this is God's righteousness from here to here. Maybe Job thought, no way am I God. I'm just really about up to here. But it seems ridiculous, right? Even just to say that. If this is a yard, are we a foot? Is our righteousness compared to God an inch? Is it an eighth of an inch? Job may not have thought that he was all the way there, but he compared himself to God far too favorably. And if we really meditate, I think we'd find it's easy for us to do as well. Okay, when I meditate, I find it's really easy for me to do as well. Uh, And Job has reminded me of that, and I think we all can. Well, that's all the insights I'm going to give you today. I am out of time. But I hope it's encouraged you to consider this book. The book of Job really is something amazing. Uh, It gives us insights concerning the spirit realm, the relationship between God and man, between man and man, the nature of righteousness, the purpose of man, the plan of God, and the purpose of suffering, the meaning of deep faith, and the only true perspective that gives us a right view of our lives, which is a right view of God in the first place. Uh, If you're looking for a new book of the Bible to jump into and swim around, I hope you'll consider the book of Job.